Hello Katawantok, here come the Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Mikoroi Hawkins. Coming up first... They're supposed to be uh, earning a living here and sending most of their money back home, but it's hard enough for them to actually survive here. Calls for a review of New Zealand's RSE seasonal worker programme. If 25% of Pacific children are growing up in poverty, I think it's safe to make the assumption that some of them are not going to be payment. More money for Pacifica in the government's 2022 wellbeing budget, but Pacifica communities say it doesn't go far enough. Uh, he said he did not want a pitiful end to his political career, so he decided to call it a day. And after almost 40 years in New Caledonian and French politics, Philippe Gomez is bowing out of the national political limelight. A recent New Zealand Parliamentary Select Committee inquiry into the recognised seasonal employer scheme has heard serious allegations of exploitation of Pacific Island workers. The committee reviewed a submission made by the Amalgamated Workers' Union of New Zealand, which documents, among other things, poor accommodation conditions and unfair employment agreements. Finau Funua reports. Green Party MP and Immigration Spokesperson Ricardo Menendez March described the experiences of Pacific Island workers as harrowing. He said reforms needed to be implemented. The RSC scheme needs an overhaul. I mean, we just been hearing at our Parliament Select Committee on Migrant Exploitation harrowing stories of the conditions that many RSC workers face. We need far better conditions for the RSC workers. We don't want to be hearing stories of people living in overcrowded accommodation and not being given the same right as uh, New Zealand citizen workers. The submission made by the Amalgamated Workers' Union of New Zealand also alleges that living costs had also increased Regional organiser Michelle Johnstone says most RSC workers have no negotiating power regarding their wages, and a big chunk of their pay goes to expenses, such as accommodation and health insurance. She says investigations by her union found that workers were being overcharged and ripped off by unscrupulous employers. Everything from accommodation, all the costs that they incur, incur the health insurance that they pay, um, it, it just increases every year and they're supposed to be uh, earning a living here and sending most of their money back home but it's hard enough for them to actually survive here. Uh, everybody is clipping their ticket along the way and they're getting paid minimum. Other workers' rights groups in New Zealand have echoed the issues. Dennis Maga, the Secretary General of New Zealand's second largest trade union, First Union, says he continues to receive complaints from seasonal workers. Maga says workers live together in backpacker-like accommodations owned by their employers. RC workers are exempted from finding work elsewhere, meaning if they quit, they must return to their home country. We're also getting information that some employers are instructing them not to communicate or socialize within their community, so they remain isolated, which is really a concern because some employers are very supportive about their employees. There are also employers who believe that isolating them is the best way because they can stay away from outside influence, which we don't understand. Maga says more is needed from government to address the problem. He says there are not enough labour inspectors to ensure employers are meeting the RSE requirements and conditions, and also that non-government third parties are needed during negotiations between RSE workers and their employers. We are aware of a couple of investigations and it takes ages 
for the government to fully complete them. Uh, it could be because of the number of labor inspectors. The government must have a post-arrival orientation for RSU workers. And this post-arrival orientation, they should also involve uh, a third party because they, they have this fear dealing with government officials. There are around 7,000 Pacific Islanders working in New Zealand under the RSC scheme, forming an integral part of the core workforce in horticulture and viticulture. The New Zealand government's 2022 wellbeing budget is delivering more money for Pacifica Health and Education, but leaders of Pacific communities say it doesn't go far enough. Although $196 million is the largest ever budget investment for Pacifica, there's disappointment over poverty, the pay gap and amnesty to overstayers not being prioritised. RNZ Pacific's Alicia Foon has the latest. Pacific people in Aotearoa also getting a slice of the pie. The largest funding allocation in the Pacific package is the $76 million for Pacific Health. It's set to support Pacific Health providers, fund a targeted diabetes prevention and management program. Auckland University sociologist Dr Siriana Naipi was pleased to see health prioritised but is disappointed the one-off payment of $350 for people earning less than $70,000 a year excludes beneficiaries. Everybody's under pressure with inflation, and it kind of just ignores our, our most vulnerable. And when I, when I saw that, I was really gutted, because if 25% of Pacific children are growing up in poverty, I think it's safe to make the assumption that some of them are not going to get this payment. But this is a really hard time for them. $47 million is going towards Pacific education and employment initiatives, supporting Pacific science, technology, engineering, arts and maths opportunities. Otago University student president Melissa Lama says it was great to see clearer pathways, but questioned why student allowances weren't boosted. They've taken a really broad approach, a banded approach, so I'm a little bit disappointed um, and um, I would have liked to have seen more um, value put into tertiary students for sure. Chief Executive for the Pacifica Medical Association and the Pacific Whanau Water Commissioning Agency, Pacifica Futures, Debbie Sorensen, says it was great to see a large cash injection, but overall feels let down. She says the government failed to address what would happen to hundreds of Pacific students who haven't returned to school since the pandemic began. We need to do something about up to three years of schooling that some children have missed. And uh, the budget is pretty silent on that. You know, we have three years of kids who have not completed their secondary schooling and who are now unemployed and have left school. And so, you know, their future is looking pretty bleak. As for housing, up to 300 homes will be built over the next 10 years for Pacific families in eastern Porirua and Wellington. Minister for Pacific Peoples Alpito Williamsio says this budget is about lifting Pacific well-being. We're trying to respond to the everyday challenges that, that our communities are facing. I can say with hand on heart that our Pacific families will benefit immensely with the overall response to the cost of living pressures. But then more importantly, we're looking to the future. We'll continue our work in enriching Pacific peoples in Aotearoa. $13.7 million is going towards the government's commitment to deliver a Dongan Raids historical account. Although, Dongan community leader Pakilao Manasilua is wanting more practical redress. One of the big disappointments for me was 
there's a lot of money going into the dorm raids education program, which is fantastic. However, what would have been better would have been to find pathways to residency for the 14,000 overstayers in this country during a pandemic and also um, during a tight labour market. You know, we can put them to work. You know, they can work their way to find pathways to residency. Pacific leaders say this is just a start to addressing inequities that have only become further entrenched during the pandemic. After almost 40 years in New Caledonian and French politics, Philippe Gomez is bowing out of the national political limelight. His term as member of the French National Assembly is about to end and he says he won't seek selection for a French Senate seat next year. Gomez had been president of both the Southern Province and of the New Caledonian government. He'll remain a member of New Caledonia's Congress. Joining me to talk a bit about Gomez's career and legacy is RNZ Pacific senior journalist Walter Twyfor. Kia ora, Walter. Let's start at the beginning. When did Philip Gomez first enter the political scene in New Caledonia? Well, he came onto the scene almost 40 years ago as a young advisor in the Loeffler era. Uh, he was a key centre-right supporter, uh, had a, a relatively good and fast career, became mayor very young up in Lafour, joined the domestic uh, or the local legislature. Uh, his career involved him being president of New Caledonia and for the last 10 years he's been one of the two members from New Caledonia in the French National Assembly. Um, he's now just announced that uh, apart from the fact that he will not be seeking re-election, he's also announced that he has no intention of standing next year when the French Senate elections are on and, and uh, a position that he could possibly could have uh, considered. Uh, he said he did not want, as he made a comment on television, you know, have a sort of a, a pitiful end to his political career. So he decided to call it a day. And uh, that's after basically 36 years at the, the centre of New Caledonian politics. How influential was he as a leader in New Caledonia? Well, I would say that uh, in the... This century was probably the most significant uh, anti-independence politician with the problems within the RPCR party, which was the, the, this monolithic type formation leading up to the Nomia Court, signature Nomia Court. In the aftermath of that, he formed his own party called uh, Caledonia Together or Caledonia Ensemble. That party did rather well and became the dominant anti-independence party. However, the succession of Jacques Lafleur, who was this towering figure for much of the end of last century, in this uh, wrangling within the anti-independent side, there were splits. So Caledonia Ensemble was only one of several parties in recent times. I would say that he, uh, you know, 15 years ago, he, w- he would have been the most significant local anti-independence politician. What was different uh, from the approach that he had taken was that he started to steer away from the confrontational pro-anti-independence rhetoric. Uh, a little bit of a giveaway is the name Caledonia Ensemble, Caledonia Together. So he tried to form a more inclusive new Caledonia for the future. Uh, his idea was also that a referendum question should more look at constructively what are we voting for, you know, what sort of society will we have away from the way it was then coined by France, you know, do you want to have a yes or no, which is sort of not a grey, but it's a black or white. In that sense, he was a significant politician for all these years. Now, where does 
he leave New Caledonia? I guess I guess what I'm mm. asking is what impact will his departure likely have or or not? Well, it's it's hard to say. I mean, he's he said he's not been keen to uh, share much of views at the moment, saying that he's passed on to Philippe Dunoyer, that is a Caledonia Together politician who was his colleague in Paris. There were, there were two members of Caledonia Ensemble in Paris in the National Assembly. He's passed on to Philippe Dunoyer. You know, he's much younger. He says, you know, he will be the person to answer how things are going forward. Uh, interesting to notice that now after the last referendum where there is, you know, a strong pro-independence bloc that is not in agreement with how things are being done. You know, in this situation, Caledonian Ensemble has now merged again with former rivals on the anti-independent side. So this could possibly indicate that uh, positions are going to be hardened or have to be aligned with the ones who are more hardline because it's, 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 you know, it's boiling down again. What are we going to do next? The Numia Court is finished. We have to have something new. The anti-independent side says we know we have to find a way of integrating into France. The pro-independent side, as we've said, you know, they don't even accept the referendum outcome. So we're, we're in that sense, we're in a difficult situation. You know, his legacy, would say, I would say, is that, that he, in this Numea court period, while being against independence, his position was not, uh, let's say, rhetorically speaking, sharp against the pro-independent side. But he, uh, you know, he's tried to figure out, um, I would say, a softer way of resolving the, the decolonization question. Now he's he's found himself in court a few times. Uh, what's his his brush with with the court systems? How's yeah, that gone over the years? Yeah, well, it's basically an issue: business interests and and public interest. Uh, also, being a businessman, questions were raised about how these things are compatible. Interestingly, that his decision to leave politics uh, sort of coincided with a court case uh, revolving around the fact that he was the chairman of a newly formed energy company, Numea, trying to build a new power plant needed for the SLA nickel plant and for the greater Numea area. At the same time, he was a a politician, i.e. a member of the French National Assembly and a member of the New Caledonian Congress. Now, the defence said, um, you know, he did not seek loans or concessions uh, from the government while he was part or, or leading this, this uh, energy consortium. Um, he himself had this question tested in France and the court then said that uh, um, it was not compatible, prompting him to resign from his role on the energy sector uh, company there. Uh, the court ruling that now has come out is th- that no, they will not follow the prosecution's line that he should have a suspended prison sentence over this, but that he will be having to pay a fine. And so it, it has been said to being a, um, you know, that he has to pay a fine. Um, it hasn't come across as a, you know, a major uh, corruption case, uh, and I don't think that in any way he feels that he did anything wrong. More, he thought that he stepped up in a complicated situation to try to move forward with this complex issue of getting this energy plant going to the benefit of the SLN plant and the greater environment in Umea. Circling back to Budget 2022, the New Zealand government has committed $4.4 million to support the purchase of a new AM transmitter for RNZ Pacific. 
It's part of the government's move to substantially increase the amount of funding for public media to ensure New Zealanders can continue to access quality local content and trusted news. A major part of this includes $327 million that's been allocated for a new public media entity merging TVNZ and RNZ, which includes RNZ Pacific. Susana Suisuiki has the details. Broadcasting Minister Chris Farfoy says RNZ Pacific's shortwave transmitter is critical for providing the most trusted and comprehensive news service for Pacific peoples in New Zealand and across the Pacific region. RNZ Pacific has an estimated audience of over a million listeners and its AM signal covers all of the Pacific Islands and can sometimes be heard as far away as Japan, North America, the Middle East and Europe. RNZ CEO Paul Thompson says the funding for the new transmitter underlines the importance of providing trusted news across the region, especially during tumultuous times. Mr Thompson says RNZ Pacific will also have a crucial role in the new media entity. The timing of this is really important because you know the Pacific is unsettled at the moment um, geopolitically, and it's not a coincidence that in the same budget in which the minister delivered increased funding for public media as a whole, um, budget also included this investment for RNZ Pacific. So I think RNZ Pacific has a really important role in the new entity, both in terms of connecting with Pacific people in New Zealand, but also doing that vital job of providing trusted content right throughout the region. RNZ Pacific's technical specialist, Adrian Sainsbury, says RNZ Pacific is absolutely delighted with a major funding injection for RNZ Pacific's transmission to the Pacific region. We've been asking for this for many years now to update our transmission system because um, as time goes by, we're still actually relying on a 1980s transmitter as a backup in case our current main one uh, falls over for any technical reasons. So it's uh, really been a, a major injection for us to pretty well ensure our future for, I, I reckon, for, for many years to come. RNZ Pacific manager Moira Tulai Patela says the investment shows the government recognises the significance of RNZ Pacific in the region. This new transmitter will just ensure that we will still be able to continue our work into the Pacific, informing our audiences out in the region, which is you know, what RNZ Pacific does. It also means that services like um, Cyclone Watch Service, which is currently operating at the moment with Cyclone Gina near Vanuatu, we can still do those regular weather updates and that will also happen in the future as well. That's really important lifeline information that RNZ Pacific provides. Once the new transmitter is up and running, it will enable RNZ Pacific to continue providing broadcasting services to Aotearoa and the region for the next 20 years. That's Pacific Waves for today. Next week, you'll have Alicia Foon hosting the program as I'm taking a bit of a break. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. Tofa soifua.